So uh, last week, most of us, except for Diane, had a chance to kind of think through the first three verses of Psalm 23, and I don't know if you had a chance to then um, at any point in time ponder ponder anything or look up anything further. I always like to open with, was, was there anything last week that you may have since then either in a devotional way thought through something or in a, hmm, I wonder if that was really right way because as we study together it's always good to, to make sure we're correcting each other. Um, I'd much rather be corrected by this group than by Christ at his feet and saying I misled somebody. So, you know, if there was anything that you, you pondered on since then, anything that came up. Good. Yep. 22 leading into 23, as I was studying this, um, uh, it's kind of hard to make a, a, a super good connection between 22, 23, and 24, but as you read them and you know that um, they were placed in a certain order um, by whomever was accumulating all of the poems, the Hebrew, Hebrew poetry, probably around the time of the returning exile, or the people in exile, or as they returned, they put them in a certain order. And so many commentators may comment that you're seeing the um, lamb that was slain in 22, moving into um, the start of what he knows is going to be a kingdom. And he's taking care of his sheep. And then as we look at 24, if you've glanced at 24, it's this proclamation of you know, basically victory. Um, and so it's the three of them set real nicely together. And I hadn't realized some of those things in 23 until I studied it. But Tracy, I'm with you. I kind of like that 22 stuff. Anything else on 23 or 23? Move on to the last three chapters or verses. Before we do that, I I ran into um, a poem, and I hope you guys are okay with you know a little bit of snarkiness. There was somebody that wrote a poem that's the antithesis to Psalm 23, and it's hilarious. So here, here it goes. Forgive me if if this isn't your kind of humor, but it was so mine. So you're going to hear the cadence of Psalm 23, but completely from a not, the Lord is my shepherd, but the clock is my dictator, I shall not rest. It makes me lie down only when exhausted. It leads me into deep depression. It hounds my soul. It leads me in circles of frenzy for activity's sake. Yea, even though I run frantically from task to task, I will never get it all done, for my ideal is with me. Deadlines and my need for approval, they drive me. They demand performance from me beyond the limits of my schedule. They anoint my head with migraines. My in-basket overflows. Surely fatigue and time pressures shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the bonds of frustration forever. Isn't is yeah. It is actually um, I will tell charity well it you can listen to this too, but it's at, in, on Bible.org. If you go under Bible.org and look under illustrations, it's in there. So they have illustrations for different things out there. That was just, just good enough to read. But let's read the real thing. Psalm 23, verses 1 through 6. 
And since there's six of us, I'll just read the first one and we'll just go around. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Okay, what version are you reading from? Yeah, because it had, yeah, that's, that's interesting. It had some, it had a little commentary inside of it, yeah. All right, let's talk about the first phrase that's in verse 4. Um, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Um, we, you know, we were talking a little bit, we ended last week on the paths that... God leads us down and the changes and the new pasture that a sheep has to go to and has to be nearly weekly or they will be very destructive to the land. So this is one of the paths that you know, we as sheep are being led down. And it's it's the path or it's the phrase that most people probably associate most closely with death. But if we really examine this, um, we're talking about not death, but what are we talking about? Let's, let's look at what the phrase of the noun is, because it's really not death at all. What's the actual, I wish I knew my English uh, words better. I kind of forget what they are. But what's the actual object that we're talking about? Nope. Keep going. Nope, that's okay. What is the? Verse 4. That's okay. What's the actual object? It is a valley. It's, you're in a valley, and what's the next thing? It's a shadow of death. It's not death that we're talking about, but it's the shadow of death. So we're going we're to talk about the valley, because that's the best place spot we're going to talk about, because that's really what it's being, what's being talked about. But the object of the valley, or the description of the valley, is it's a shadow of death. And so when the... Uh, when we look at it that way, Christ has already conquered death. We're really only looking about shadows, at a shadow of what it is. And that's really our whole life long. So the moment we're born, we're born because we're broken. We're born, and from that point on, we are in the shadow of what will be that, that last door where we go into eternity with Christ. So the whole of it's talking about the whole of life. It's not talking about those last moments of death. It's the shadow of death of our whole life. But there are times when it's crummy stuff that's going on, and that is the valley. So before we talk about the valley and how fertile a valley is, let's do look at it, the verse um, that we're examining and look at the um, the actual pronouns. And from a literary standpoint, look at those first three verses. The Lord is my shepherd. This is the easy pronoun. He makes me lie down. He leads me. He restores me. He leads me. Now look what happens in verse 4 to the pronoun. 
um, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. So the, in verse 5, it turn, the pronouns turn into, am I using the pronoun word right? Um, turns into an, a more intimate person-to-person discussion versus the first three verses where the supplicant is describing the shepherd. Now I'm talking to the shepherd because now I'm in a valley. I'm in something that's deep. So um, that's kind of a that's kind of a different look as we as we examine these verses and the change that happened there. One other thing I wanted to say about that shadow of death. That's actually a um, I don't know how common it was. I didn't look outside of biblical of the Bible to see if it was outside of it in other literature forms at that time. But the phrase shadow of death happens more times in the Old Testament than I thought, about three or four times. If you were to um, do a search, you'll find it in not just David's poetry of Psalms, but in some other things. And you'll even find it a couple times in the New Testament. There are a couple of, um, uh, I can't remember if it's Paul or if it was in Hebrew. Anyway, if you were to search, you'll find that phrase, shadow of death, more than just right here. So it's it's a poetic phrase that's basically saying, not necessarily the exact time frame just before my death, but life is hard. We're in the shadow of death our whole life long. Well, let's do talk about the valley, because the valley is, for sheep, um, a fertile spot where the, the shepherd is leading them in a valley for a particular reason. So from a life, from an annual cycle for sheep in the uh, free-range uh, places where they're going to have um, different spots for winter grazing and summer grazing, what they'll do is they'll keep their sheep near them, down near the farm, in these different pastures that they they um, keep them in different pens, great big open areas during the winter. But in the summer, as soon as the uh, snow is off of the higher lands, they will take those herds up to the higher lands where they have much more space and they can move them around more. And it's very nice up there. But between the lower level where their farm is and this upper land up in more mountainous, mountainous hilly um, ranges to get there. It's not a straight path. It usually has to follow the ravines and the more difficult ways to kind of climb and weave their way up to the higher spot. They're following. It takes them a while to get there. So the shepherd or or the however they're leading them are going down into the valley, and they're usually following some sort of water system all the way up. And so it's it's very tight quarters, um, as we kind of picture this. So it's real tight quarters. It's it is darker and gloomier. It's hard to see the light. Now you can, as I'm describing this, as I was reading something that was describing this. I mean, we can picture our own walk with Christ in uh, in these gloomy times, that He is driving us and, and leading us through these valleys. But it's rich, fertile because it's where the the land would have, or some of the silt would have come down and been a little bit closer to the edges of the water. Thoughts on that? The picture is really kind of cool to me as I was realizing what they what they did to get them up to the winter, I mean to the summer uh, ranges. You can't see it. 
Yeah. Some lights there. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Those are the pictures we should have when we read this, when we read this poem. Yeah. Then at the end of the summer and the snow comes, they have to, they have to come back. But the whole point of that first phrase is actually that last part, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And it isn't saying evil and bad things aren't working in the valley. It's saying the shepherd is there with me as I move through the valley. That's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think you also. Because you're... Not somehow, yeah, because I can fear not, or I, the evil is going to go away. No, the evil is there. It's ever present. We are ever present in the shadow of death. That is, that is the definition of life. That shouldn't be a downer, but as I said it, I'm realizing, wow, yeah, that wasn't as uplifting as I, it sounded in my head earlier. <laughs> and then. Yeah. And it is. It is. I mean, it is. There is the shadows and it's dark. But, but yeah, the shepherd leading me along, it is fertile right there, right where he's leading me. Yep. 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 No, you're right. We should be thinking of it as, it is a scary place. But my shepherd is with me so I don't have to fear. Yep. Then the next phrase uh, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So when the, let's just talk about rod and staff. The commentators are, differ on whether there's a distinction between the two. But as I read up on what the actual tools are, there really is a little bit of difference. Um, apparently a rod is um, usually some sort of a very straight stick with some sort of a ball on the end of it. They look for a particular kind of tree or sapling that they cut down and and it has a, a ball on the end of it. And very practiced shepherds, especially in Palestine, um, will, from a young child, learn how to um, manage that rod as if it's an extension of their hand. They can throw it and can, can, can use it to um, protect the flock. The staff always has the loop on it. And so they, they feel like they're two different kinds of tools. I guess I should say the commentators differ as to whether it's meaningful that there's any reason to even talk about it separately. However, I'll just share with you what what a shepherd does with sheep with the two different ones, because then in my head it was like, oh, there is a tiny bit of difference. So the rod, the straight thing, um, usually they uh, they can use it to um, count the sheep. It is what the tool that they would use to um, as the sheep are going through some sort of a narrow gate to um, hold back a sheep or to you know, let the next one through. And there's actually verses. There's one in, I wanted us to look this one up, Ezekiel 20, 37. If you can glance there, this is just a very minor and quick uh, glance over. So uh, uh, this is uh, the Lord talking about the, the people as they are coming through the wilderness, but it's, it's saying, and I will cause you to pass under the rod. 
And so they, there is actually a picture that anyone living at that time would have would have in their mind. Did I did I write down the right one? Twenty thirty Ezekiel twenty thirty seven. Can you find it? Yeah, twenty thirty seven. And I will cause you to pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. And, and then it goes on. I will purge out from among you the rebels. So it, it's it's talking about this very methodical manner in which the sheep are counted. In another spot in the Bible, it talks about um, having the, the literal sheep passing under the rod so that the sheep can be counted. And every tenth sheep, according to how they managed sheep um, back then, would actually be marked with some sort of paint or something so that, so that there was an observation of every tenth, every you know, tithing the sheep, every tenth one, whether it was... A, um, a sheep without blemish or not was marked. And then I don't know what the exchange was, if it did, it did end up having a blemish. But they were very methodical using the rod as they managed their sheep. So that was kind of a, a manner in which they used it in an authoritative manner in managing their sheep. They also used the rod to, exi- they used the rod to examine the sheep. So it's very intimate. They pushed the wool back um, in order to look and see if the skin is blemished or if there's anything on it. And there are some, um, you know the expression, pulling the wool over your eyes. Um, I was trying to find if uh, there are some people that believe this practice of um, pulling the sheep's wool back so they can examine the flesh is where that expression came from. On um, pulling the wool, a sheep would have the wool over their eyes and pulling the wool back from their eyes. So it comes from that that expression with the shepherd. And then there is... um, using that rod to protect against predators. And there's this really cool story I want to read to you. It was uh, from that book by Philip Keller. I think I mentioned that last week, right? Did I tell you guys about that book? It's more a devotional book than it is anything, but it's... Have, have any of you read it? Have you... Okay. All right. Yeah. It's just... Ex- there. You can find some things online that are really good, or just it's a small devotional little book, but there was a story that was told by this man who uh, was both shepherd, a shepherd, and now was a pastor. Um, he said in Kenya once he was photogra- photographing elephants. He went there for that. He said, I was being accompanied by a young Maasai herder who, who carried a club in his hand. We came to the crest of a hill from which we could see a herd of elephants in the thick brush below us. To drive them out into the open, we decided to dislodge a boulder and roll it down the slope. As we heaved and pushed against the great rock, a cobra, coiled beneath it, suddenly came into view, ready to strike. In a split second, the alert shepherd boy lashed out with his club, killing the snake on the spot. The weapon had never left his hand, even while we worked on the rock. And I was just thinking, I mean, they were working on dislodging a boulder, and he had his club in his hand and was ready to use it. So, you know, what a wonder, what a great picture. What a great picture all the way around of seeing that. Then the staff. The staff is hooked. The no, There is no other ma- animal that is managed with a hooked staff, just sheep. And apparently it's mainly a symbol of concern. If you go down the path of these two tools, make, make a difference. Um, the shepherd will bring a newborn closer to a mother because little lambs when they are born might be rejected by their mothers if you have too much human scent on them. I didn't realize this was one of those animals, but they used the hooked 
pull them close. Um, it's used to guide the sheep or to rescue the sheep. So my question to you, um, I don't know if you think of it as two, two tools or one, but when we look at that phrase, now I have to go back to where we were. When we look at the phrase, must hold down lower. <laughs> must not have too much sense. It is used as a walking stick too, but I think it's up way high. Yes. Yeah, I think it's yeah, I think it's up way I think it's pretty long. Yeah. So when you think of it as your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And you think of how I described sheep and shepherds and those tools, again, whether it's two two or one. What does God use? If we are the little sheep, in the manner that I was describing the shepherd to the sheep, what tools does he use with us that comforts us? What would you say those tools would be? Make it real for us. What protects us, what guides us, what corrects us, what counts us, what... Yeah, I thought that was one of them, too. I think it has to be. Scripture has to be one of them. And maybe it's the only one, but thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me possibly other believers. That we just walked through. It's a good tool. Honest Christian Christ is a great tool. So Holy Spirit is, I mean, it is God as a tool. But yeah, yeah. The prompting to be guided there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's go to verse 5. This one's an interesting one when we start to go down um, uh, uh, the analogy end of what verse 5 is. Let me read all three phrases. There's three phrases in here. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. My cup overflows. So preparing a table, anointing my head, and cup. Skip the sheep for a second. What does that scream to you? Table, um, not my head with oil, a cup. 
don't go, don't go deep theologically. I'm talking an analogy. What if you see a table and see a, cap, a banquet? Yeah. There are commentators who say this poem, the first four verses are all about sheep and shepherd, and this one moves over into the host um, banquet um, analogy. I used to think that, not that I thought very deeply on this, but the more I studied it, I actually am going to lean more towards there are, are sheep shepherd things here. I'm going to tell you that in a minute. But let's stay on the banquet host side for just a second. Um, if it's an image of a gracious host first, that's fine too. I mean, God's a great host for us in all these ways. But it also, if we understand how ancient Near East um, uh, treatment of guests was very, very serious, we will understand how, how serious this is, how attached a host gets to their visitor. Um, I actually want us to read, if we can find it, um, do you guys know how to Google some commentators? Because I want you, if you can, I, if, what we're going to do is we're going to read Genesis 19.8, and you're going to say, what are we doing in this story? Because we're going to interrupt a story that is one of the most bizarre stories in the Bible, I think. So as I as I have you pull up Genesis 19:8, you know exactly even by reading those first that first line, you know what story we're in. Okay, so we're in the story about Lot. The angels have come into the town of Sodom. Lot has begged them; he doesn't know they're angels to come to his house, and they they're in the house, and the men of Sodom are trying to get his visitors, and now Lot is offering up his daughters. But look at the very end of this Genesis 19.8. He says, the very last phrase. Mine says, uh, I'll read King James first because I wanted to get this word. For therefore came they under the shadow of my roof. And in ESV, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. What else, what else have you got? What's the last phrase on verse 8? Under the protection of my roof. Okay. The ancient Near East host takes their protection of guests so seriously. I want us to try to Google, if you can, I can get it on oh, you didn't read uh, look up the Cambridge Bible Commentary for Genesis 19.8. We'll see if, if you can get it that way. So, Genesis 19.8, Cambridge Bible Commentary. I don't know if you're going to be able to um, I have mine tucked in 19 verse 8. See if it just pops up that way. You guys able to get it? And it came up to Cambridge Bible. It starts out with for as much as. Is that what it came up as? I'm, I'm just hoping you guys can get it. Ah, I'll read it to you if you can't pull it up. Okay, yeah. It's awesome. And I, we won't waste we won't take too long, but I do want us to use commentaries a little bit tonight. Okay. Tell me if you think you've got it, because otherwise I'm going to read it. It's about uh, seven or eight sentences long. Okay. I'm going to go ahead and read it. Now, it's written, this is written from, I don't know when they must have written this, maybe, I'd say maybe three or nine years ago, because the words are Okay, so they're making a comment on um, 
on the uh, type of uh, hosting that Lot is proposing. So here's what it says. Lot's proposal, so atrocious in our ears, may have been deemed meritorious in an eastern country where no sacrifice was considered too great to maintain inviolate, inviolate the safety, protect the safety of a stranger who had been received in hospitality. That Lot should have thought of imperiling the honor of his family and not have basically given up his own life is due not so much to the weakness of the man as to the terribly low estimate of womanhood which prevailed at the time. Um, and there's another story that he talks about. The three regulations of Arab law, he calls it modern, so it must have been, I don't know, 180, 100 years ago, as the protection of the stranger are recorded, and it's this. Number one, if a man's tent rope touches yours, then he can be treated as a stranger. You have to protect him. If he journeys with you by day and sleeps by your side at night, you have to protect him. And if the guest who eats with you is under your protection, he's under your protection until he has eaten with another. So they were, they had these laws about if you, if they come kind of near you and you start to do any protection, you are, you will do anything. What was it? No sacrifice was considered too great for the safety of a stranger. So if, if, all of this to say, if Psalm 23 verse 5 is about God being our host, he is a grand host indeed even though we went to a really horrible story. However, if he's the shepherd still, let's look at the rest of how the... Let me pause there. Did you guys ever think of the that first that verse 5 as host or as shepherd? Has that, have you ever studied this enough? Or you, your pastor went through that? They had to. Yeah, good point. Her pastor had unpacked all of Psalm 23 at some point. Her former church pastor had unpacked it all, so she had heard some of this too. So yeah, if he, if he is a host, he is a grand host. If he, if verse five refers to she, um, there is a little bit of. Uh, an interesting comment about the word table. Um, back to the cycle, the annual cycle of how sheep and shepherds work. As that shepherd had led that that flock of sheep up to the higher ground, before for the summer grazing, before the sheep ever got there, he and a, and a group of um, scouts had to get up there first to scout out that table, that 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 ta- that grazing area. And what they usually went to was some sort of a plateau or a tabletop or a a mesa. Is that how we say that? M-E-S-A. It's Spanish for table. And it's still um, how, again, in the Western United States and in Palestine, they are still, um, they still do this. They go ahead of time and they scout out for toxic weeds or for predators or any, or cleaning up the water holes. And they, they prepare the grazing area. Then once the sheep get there, for their summer grazing, they are constantly on the alert. So that particular phrase, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, um, could also mean a shepherd going up there and even you know, cougars who can't, who don't make their appearance very clear. They, they 
they come up and destroy things, but um, the, the shepherd is out there trying to get rid of them. So it could still be a shepherd thing. Anything else on that table? Have you what what does that what does that mean to you guys today? I mean, how does that how does God prepare the table before us in the presence of our enemies? Yeah, he goes up there and he clears out the toxic weeds. He makes he looks to see if there's any um, predators that he's going to have to be wary of. Cleans out the uh, water holes up there. That's what they said they did. How does he do that? To, how does God do that for us today? How does Christ prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies? Definitely before us. Yeah. And that is a cool picture. anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Let's talk about those kind of in conjunction. Let's look up the word, the meaning of the word anoint. So do you guys, um, as you have studied, in fact, you, have you gone down into the, the Hebrew word? And what, what do you use to understand the, the definition behind the Hebrew word? First of all, do you know how to find the Hebrew word? Because I wanted to use this time to, to really, you know, practice something. Let's practice it on the word anoint. So here's how I do it, and then tell me how you do it if you've done this. I would go to someplace online. I would definitely not pull out a big old fat book someplace, although you can do this. I'll go someplace online that would that would um, probably be called Strong's. Diane, do you have any other reference I would use? Because that's where I would have sent them. Okay. You just look up the word, look up Strong's Concordance. Type in Strong's Concordance. We're going to go there first. See what pulls up. If we had been a larger group, I was going to have two different tables doing this on their own. We're just going to do this all together. Um, the, reason, the only reason I say that is I was just going to let everybody kind of struggle their way through it, see how we got there. So basically I'm letting you struggle your way through it. Strong's Concordance. Have you found something called, okay, pull that up. Pull something up that says Strong's Concordance. Okay? Because there's lots of them out there. You can, you can go at this many different, way, different ways. I have something else set up. It gives me a couple shortcuts. I'm going to show you that in a minute. Oh, I see. They're trying to sell you a book first, but let's go to Bible study tools or something like that. And then we're going to type in search the Bible with strong concordance. So find the search feature somewhere on, on there. And I'm going to tell you a number, and then I'm, we'll figure out how to find these numbers later. Type in the number H for the code H18. Seven, eight, and let's see what happens. Oh, look, we, look, oops, we can't find it. So they want us to type in the actual word. Okay, here we go. Next. Did you guys find a search feature? 
No, 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 no. Don't download it. Find something online. Okay. I'm not, I'm not having any luck with Bible study tools. I'm going to show you my shortcut, and then um, I'll, I'm going to figure out how I, I could tell you how to get to this. Here's my point that we're going to go down. The word anoint, if you just think about it from a definitional standpoint of what you've heard in the past, how would you define anoint? What does that mean? Or what, if not the exact definition, what's going on when you are anointed? What does that mean? Okay. Ritual blessing. Okay. Anything else? Not sure what. Yeah. Some sort of oil being rubbed. Yeah. Anything else? Anointing is oftentimes associated with kings, and they're being anointed, and it it. Yep. Yep. So there is a there is a uh, kind of priestly office that's anointing and, and setting them aside. So anointing or setting aside. There are many different words in the Bible used for the word anoint. And so you guys actually went towards the right definition inside of this verse. But I, for some, whatever reason, always gravitated towards the some sort of, you know, like I'm, as a sheep, I'm being anointed, I'm, I'm being set aside. Which we are. We're set aside as a, as a group of people under Christ. But the word that is used for anointing as a king or setting aside is not the word in here. It's a different word. It's the word for probably a little more prosperity or being taken care of or provision, that kind of, of thing. What I was going to have you do was go down far enough into an actual concordance that helps you see those, those differences. So when you're studying on your own, and when I mean study, it's not the, your morning devotional time and time in the Bible. Or when you're just reading, you don't go down and get under the covers of every single word. You, you can't. You need to just step backwards and let the Holy Spirit just guide you through God's word. But when you study it and you've typed out or written out a word and you're you're taking each line and you're looking at word after word, almost word after word, you know, verse by verse, the key words. There's quick ways to get at it, and so um, find a digital way to get down under the covers as you can. And if you look, we can talk about that at the end if that's of interest because there's ways to get at it that makes it so easy. Or you can buy, buy a big old Strong's Concordance that's this thick and pull it off the shelf and try to figure it out, which is what, which is what the old-fashioned way was. Yeah, we have one at home too. And I never pulled it out. I probably pulled it out once or twice when my father-in-law said, you guys need a Strong's Concordance. Strong's Concordance when we got married. It's like, to do what? <laughs> that same word is used throughout. Yeah. So the point is, however you do it, it's actually important to try to start to get that into your tool chest of how do you study the Bible. And again, it's not, you pull this out when you're studying, not when you're enjoying God in, in the morning and just reading and doing a little bit of devotional time. Other thoughts on, on that as a tool?
I do use that quite a lot, but I have something. I'm very lazy about it. I have a quick way to do it. It has all the, has everything all listed. I just boom, 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 I'm done. Okay. So anoint, it is the blessing. It's provision. Um, it's the head with oil. And same thing with cup overflowing. It's just that picture of it, it's bountiful. Now, on the, as far as the sheep and shepherd, um, hilarious pictures of what happens when the, when the sheep, um, one is a hilarious picture, one's a sad picture, a hilarious picture of sheep during mating season in the fall. The rams are a little bit cranky at each other as they're vying for the attention of the appropriate youth. And they headbutt all day long and all night long, apparently, to get rid of the competition. And the shepherd in this, this book was saying it can get so violent that it can result in death. So they are headbutting so hard. So the shepherd, the practice of the shepherds would be to smother that uh, ram's head with um, some sort of oil or very thick oil, uh, as thick as possible oil, sometimes almost tar-like, not tar-like, just with the oil, that um, would allow them that when they would headbutt, they would slide and and not cause the same injury that a non-oiled-up head would have caused. So that's a, that's a great picture of just the protection and thinking through. So anointing heads, even though we are stubborn and, you know, Protecting us from ourselves was exactly what I wrote down. And so um, the word anoint, if you would have looked it up, actually has some sort of meaning in there that's fattening. And it is the abundance. It is the provision, but it's fattening. It's so rich, and God is providing so well for us. Another story that the shepherd told about needing to cover um, the poor little lambs and, and sheep's heads with oil is this um, gnat that gets up into the um, sh uh, sheep's inside their ears or in their nostrils and lays its top. It's, it's a, um, either a fly or a gnat. Um, it's a what fly? Yes. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. It, it enters the sheep's nose and ears and lays larvae larvae inside of the poor animal's head. And and then it basically grows or it does something hideous and drives the, the poor little lamb um, to horrible measures to try to get rid of it. So they're, they are headbutting their, themselves up against things to get rid of it. They are trying to, to do just just anything so it either leads to blindness or death if, if it's not taken care of. So as soon as the bot fly is discovered, and it's some really small, itty-bitty, horrible, tiny, minuscule little thing, um, the shepherd um, has to quickly get the heads and ears and nose covered with an oil that protect, once again protects. And if it is so invasive, they will have to do some sort of dip that they run everybody through a, a big old vat to get everybody covered. But it's mainly around the heads they have to get that covered. And there's other um, yeah, stuff that poor sheep go through. But yes, it is. That's right. I forgot she was a... Yeah. See? It is one of them. They do. 
And the, the thing is about that oil, if you just kind of continue to keep this analogy going so that we can, we can see these as word pictures whenever we read this again, but that oil has to be applied continually. It's not a once and done. So during that season when the pests are after us, you know, that continual protection around us, protecting us from ourselves and protecting us from others, it's, it's not just once and done, it's continual. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Yeah. So gracious. So whether he's a gracious host who takes care of us because we've entered in, and that's a beautiful picture. I hadn't finished the, the rest of that picture in my own head, Amy, of if I just race to the edge of Christ's kingdom and he pulls me in, he's a gracious hostess and and I'm in. Or if he's a shepherd and he's protecting me from me and anointing my head and, and my cup is overflowing and, and the cup of you know, just being cared for. Beautiful picture. Absolutely beautiful picture. Anything else on verse 5? Anything else that comes to your mind or that you've studied on that? The, it was pretty light as far as a shepherd. Um, he said that there, as a shepherd, he would always walk around, especially in the winter weather, with a mixture of brandy and water that he would carry with him and that if those sheep were out there and with undue exposure to the wet and cold he would have a cup ready to to just kind of revive them so there wasn't much else as far as his picture of it lavish Each one of these phrases just turns into, you go slow enough, it turns into just a beautiful picture. And I, I love it from a poetic standpoint, but then you turn it into, he really does take care of me this way. Okay, now I have to go back to the beginning. I have no want. I have no reason to have want. I have nothing that's unmet. So verse 6. Let's cover for verse 6. First phrase, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That word surely, uh, actually I want to hear that phrase from anybody else's version of their Bible. What does yours say, Lynn? Just that one phrase. Yes. Anybody else? Okay. The, the word used for surely yeah um, yeah it's it it can also be only so it's you know the word surely gives you the impression of this must be so this must be this is logical the word only gives you oh it's limited and it's limited to the goodness and mercy and so it's both kind of a logical conclusion. If all these other things are true, it must be true that, that that's what's going to follow me. And it's also the only thing that he can give is the goodness and mercy. And the word follow, this is cool on some of the things that it, it can mean. It's, it's to run after me. It's usually with a hostile intent. 
but it's uh, it's pursuing it's it's putting to flight i mean it's it's chasing me it's it's trying you know god's mercy and god's goodness is it's like the cup overflowing it's it's the goodness and mercy that are just pouncing on me even when i'm in the valley even when i wrote down you know a whole bunch of different things as i think about my own life in the last few years between myself and those i love we've had uh there's been someone with severe depression and anxiety there's been someone that had illness where we were racing we were going around to different doctors wondering if it was cancer or what was going on we've had strained relationships there's been financial concern for for older people heavy concern for others relationship with god in you know in these last just this is just 24 months and yet it's been there's goodness and mercy i i i have to preach myself but there's been goodness and mercy and i have to say at times it's a mystery as to how is that a good thing how is that how is that good and yet we just have to that's how i have to preach to myself how do you guys preach to yourself what are the words you have to say what verses do you have to conjure up to preach to yourself to know i mean to tell yourself good and been good to me what verses do you guys pull up what do you think how do you do that help each other Right. 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 Yeah. Yes, exactly. 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 Yes. Yes. I mean, I know it's around, but yeah.
<laughs> Sounds familiar to me. Um, the word follows, as we've been saying, it's, it's a little more aggressive than the word, or in King James it was follows. The word is pursue or more aggressive. The person that wrote that shepherd book took the word follows and didn't go down the it's pursuing me, but also went down a, uh, a different path to just share an example of to think of of the phrase goodness and mercy shall follow me it could be it's following it's what I'm leaving behind am I leaving behind goodness and mercy goodness and mercy follow me as my in my trail am I leaving behind goodness and mercy and his point was and I'll share this with you about the sheep I'm not positive it completely ties into the verse anymore but because follow is so aggressive of it's pursuing but his point was Sheep are, I've mentioned this several times, horrible on the land. But if you have a good shepherd that's leading the sheep to different spots, they are actually, um, can be used to improve land because they will eat almost anything. I mean, they have to have the toxic weeds removed, but they'll eat almost anything. So they almost sounded like a goat, but they will eat almost anything. But they will also, um, uh, the way they graze, they they graze uh, their their manure. Let's, let's go to that part first. Their manure is among the best balanced of all of us of livestock. Who knew? Ask Carrie that. Ask if she knew that part. So the way they graze and and are moved these these wide open range type of uh, flocks, they are moving so far out into all the different spots that. They're spreading good stuff, good stuff everywhere. And so they're improving the land if they're well managed. And that's all the more I know about that part of sheep. <laughs> but his point was they do leave behind goodness if they are if they if they have a good shepherd. That's how he was kind of going that together. His point, and this was a good point, the only real measure of my appreciation of God's goodness and mercy to me, the only real measure, is the goodness and mercy that I leave behind for others. That is pretty good. But it really is that first one. It's pretty good. Then the last phrase, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So at the time that David is writing this, there's no temple, so we're really not talking the physical temple. Although it's good to be in the temple, in the house of the Lord. It's, I don't think any of us were probably thinking um, it's good that David was trying to imply that it's the temple. Um, and it's not necessarily talking about heaven, although there are some commentators that kind of pull this uh, since it's the last of this whole verse. It's probably talking about dwelling forever in heaven. But it's by most commentators, and as you just kind of look at that, it's talking about the goodness and mercy in the first part of that verse, all the days of my life, and also dwelling in the house of the Lord. It's this continual, even though I'm in the valley of the shadow of, the, of death my whole life, I'm also dwelling with this shepherd my whole life, and it's good. And so it's really, where else would I want to be? It's, it's like I might have options, but... Why would I go anywhere else? Because I've got it so good here. Is how we should 
conclude, and that's that's what it's saying. I, I shall dwell. I want to dwell. I, you know, I have no want. I just want to dwell with this shepherd forever. Amen and amen. Any thoughts on that verse? You can take some more time. So the question for us, <clears throat> before you ever would have studied this, and whether you studied it for the first time just now or before, I think we all can agree it's it's a funeral verse. I mean, that's where you think of it. Why? I mean, as I finished this this time, I thought to myself, why is this? Why do people think it's a funeral verse, actually? Is it because the word death is in it? Is it because the last phrase talks about live with God forever? What What is it that turned it, even from the beginning? It's comforting, but what? why is it a funeral verse? Why do you think it is? Because I can't get there now. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, because I can't see it now. Forever. It feels heavenly, doesn't it? And it is comforting. And and I want this at my funeral. But well, why is that? Why do you think it is primarily thought of that way? what I had to conclude is it, it's that phrase and the bottom phrase. I can't see anything else that's really a funeral. What's it called? By somebody other than okay okay got it okay what was what was the guy's last name This is this. Um, I had studied this about six or seven years ago, and it has turned into one of my favorite pieces. And but it's not because it's. This sounds horrible. It's not. It's not comfort. It's not because it's comforting to me in a um, funeral sense. It's comforting to me because it's. Yeah, it's a hopeful. It's a. It's the first line. I shall not want. I have no need. I have nothing unmet. When I first learned this and was a child, um, this had to have been one of the very first things that I memorized. 
and I was so rules-oriented that I went home and we're eating lunch, and I'm sitting there stone still as a five-year-old or six-year-old. And they're saying, Debbie, do you want some chicken? Do you want some green beans? I didn't want anything. So I was putting into practice, okay, Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. And I wasn't wanting. Okay, I clearly didn't have it. I clearly did not have it right. <laughs> Ow. So I've come a long ways. <laughs> I have no one near me. And I love that part. What part do you love? Ponder on him is, is restorative. You're right. Anything else? That's that's beautiful. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yes, 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 yes. Calm down, child. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a good way to say that. There is a promise. You will have valleys. I have a hymn we're going to listen to. Not him. A uh, song we're going to listen to. I had you hear something last week, but if you want to pull up the lyrics, there's a new. Um, there is a new group out of Australia called City Alight, and if you'll look up look look up lyrics for Shepherd by City Alight, it's one word. City. A-L-I-G-H-T. City Alight. If you want to look at the lyrics while this is going to play. Um, it's just called Shepherd. And they have taken the whole of Psalm 23 <coughs> and put it to a very singable chorus um, that you'll be play it a couple times. You'll be having someone play that. Shepherd by City Alight. 